seated. Good morning, church. Glad to see you guys. If you would go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that's where we're going to be in just a moment. Uh, you can be turning there. I want to especially welcome you if you're our guest today. We've prayed for you. We've prayed for this time together in this room. We've prayed that God would be exalted and that our hearts would be drawn towards Him, that He would stir up our affections towards Him. That's our prayer every single week. And so today, um, it is the same. Now, if you are new here and you're tuning in online or you're just new in this room, we'd love to have your information. You can just comment in the comment section if you're um, live streaming or if you're here today as a guest, we'd love for you to take the, the card in the seat back in front of you, fill it out and drop it in the give boxes on your way out to the right and to the left of the doors on your way out. And we'd love to have your information so we can contact you in a respectful way. Um, so today, this is week number six as we're plowing through God's Word, specifically in this letter of 1 Thessalonians. Um, and today, Paul and his missionary friends, if you, if you haven't been here for the previous weeks, here's kind of what has happened thus far. In Acts chapter 17, they go to this town, they run out of the previous town, they get there, they plant a church within three weeks to three months, somewhere in that range, very short period of time. There's a group of people who decide that they want to follow Jesus, they receive this gift of grace and his mercy, and they're transformed by it. And then an angry mob, some people are jealous because uh, Paul and his missionary friends are, are getting all this attention and they stir up an angry mob against them. They run them out of town. Now at this point, Paul has sent back Timothy to find out how in the world are they doing. He's concerned about them. Last week we talked about what his concern looked like, that they would be tempted, that they would fall away. And then today he's continuing to write back to them and his letter takes a shift at this passage today. He moves from being so encouraging and encouraged about where they're at to transitioning in the letter to say, okay, here's what it looks like to pursue godliness. This is what it looks like to pursue holiness. Here's what God has accomplished for you. And now as a result of that accomplishment, here's how we ought to behave. This is what your lives should look like. So he starts that. And, and before we even get to the conclusions of this passage, I want to start with this overarching banner. Today, he's going to deal with human sexuality how to pursue sexual uh, purity, and how to avoid and abstain from sexual immorality. So um, he's going to ask, urge, exhort. Exhort means I really want you to behave this way. And so if you're coming into the room with a lot of sexual brokenness, um, you're in good company because there's something that's common about every person in this room. Every single one of us have been affected by the results of sin. All of us have different varying degrees of brokenness and all of us would stand condemned before God's holiness if it were not for God's mercy. So for everyone in the room, here's the first news that everyone has this in common. We're broken sexually and so we bring ourselves broken to the only one who could fix us, God, who designed us for himself and, and who created us so that we might glorify him. And so as we think about how could we live in a way that would promote flourishing, we have to look to the one who designed us for himself. And so that's what this passage is about. An overarching narrative of this passage is this, that the gospel, it's going to be on the screen, is an invitation to everyone to be rescued and redeemed, specifically from broken sexuality and delivered into a holiness that only God can accomplish. So before we even go through this passage, that's where we're landing in the future. There is something God has called us to that no one here can accomplish outside of God's grace towards you. 
And the invitation is to bring your brokenness to God because he's the only one who can save you. And all that we can contribute is our brokenness to the equation. And so with that in mind, let us go to God's word, starting in verse 1 of chapter 4. And would you please ask God to speak to you? Because otherwise, these are just the words of mere human. And they're not worthy of listening to. But if these are God's word and we believe that it is, he has things to speak to us. So ask that he would speak to you specifically as we read this scripture, starting in verse 1. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus, that this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask that today, as we bring all of the mess of who we are, all of our history into this room, both those things that are known and the things that no one knows about us. All of those things, as we gather here under the authority of your word, we pray that you would speak to us, that you would do a work that only you can accomplish, that you would call us out and invite us into this, your will, what pleases you, holiness. And I pray that your Holy Spirit today would be received as a gift. For those that are far from you, I pray that they would hear just the beckoning of your mercy. That they would hear your kindness in everything I say. That it would go beyond my human capacity to communicate these things. And that ultimately you would be glorified. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I want you to imagine with me that you were invited to participate in a psychological experiment. There's 10 of you participating in a room. And each of you are seated in a row, and you're at the end of this row of about 10 people, okay? And in front of you, there's these two cards, one with a line, another with three lines. And your task in this psychological test is to determine which of these lines match the length of the first line. And it's obvious. There's one that's longer, there's one that's shorter, and there's one that is the perfect Fit. Can you imagine that with me? But you're the last person to respond to this question. Which one, A, B, or C, is the perfect fit? And every single person in front of you, look, you're completely confident on what the right answer is. But person number one answers incorrectly. Person number two answers incorrectly. And all of their answers align. Can you imagine that with me? And then you get to person number nine, and suddenly you're wondering... What in the world am I seeing wrong? There's a few options here. First, you could be like, no, I'm definitely right, and I know which one is the right line. Or you could be like, hey, I don't want to cause a ruckus here. I'm pretty sure I'm right here. 
but I don't want to make all these other people look like a fool, so I'll just go with the crowd, right? Or maybe you think just by hearing everyone else's response, you begin to wonder, like, maybe I'm wrong about this. Maybe there's something wrong with my eyesight, and every person in this room sees it more clearly than I do. There was a similar test that was conducted in the 1950s to observe how the degrees of conformity affect us, specifically when there's a majority of people that disagree with us. And, and here's what they found. Basically, that, that our answers to what's right and wrong are absolutely, they're not absolutely, but they are uh, influenced by the people around us. At least 75% of the people were at some point influenced by the answers of the people responding to that test. There were 25% that were like, I don't care if I'm right or wrong. This is what I see, and I'm going to say it. And maybe that's you today, right? Maybe you're the kind of person who's like, I'm going to just call it like I see it. If that looks right to me, and that looks wrong. But over a third of the responses, when they started to mislead them by the majority, began to be wrong. They basically found out that 75% of the people were willing to kind of alter what they were thinking based on the answers of the people around them. And, and the reason I bring that up is there's so many ways that our culture today, specifically when it comes to human flourishing and sexuality that is affecting the church rather than the church affecting culture. Now, maybe you uh, uh, enjoyed some degree of like everyone agreeing with you up until a certain point in history. And if you hold a historic, biblical, orthodox view of sexuality and you look at the world around you, eventually you're going to see that somehow the playing field has changed. It's completely changed. Not only are you in the minority if you hold the biblical view of sexuality and human flourishing, you're not only viewed as a minority, as an immoral minority. That God's perspective according to his word would be viewed as, as traumatic to the people who would hear it. That it would cause more harm than good. So that's where we find ourselves today. Now wherever you're at in your own perspective, of what is a sexual ethic, what I want you to know is that before we get into it, every one of you has a sexual ethic, okay? And here's what I mean. There's some boundary line where you're like, okay, that's definitely wrong, and that's definitely okay, even if it's just consensual. There's some boundary line where you say, this is right, this is wrong. Every person in the room has an ethic when it comes to sex. And I wanna ask you this question before I go further in this passage. How did you come to that ethic? How did you discover it? Was it a, 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 a personal journey to discovering what you thought was right and wrong? Was it influenced by the people that raised you or the people around you? And ultimately what I want to ask us today, as, as we consider what is my own ethic when it comes to human sexuality, what is God's ethic? What would he say when it comes to human flourishing? So wherever you fall today, I just want you to acknowledge every person has a sexual ethic. Every person got to that point of a sexual ethic by some degree of influence outside of, inside of you or from someone who raised you or the culture around you. However you came to it, you did come to some parameters for what's okay and what's not okay. And so I think it's really important that as we consider what's okay, what's not okay, that we consider what does God's word have to say specifically about this? So first, I want us to ask the question, what pleases God? 
Maybe that's a new question for us or an old one, and I would imagine there's a pretty wide uh, interpretation, even in this room, for what it means to please God. What is his pleasure? What is God happy with and unhappy with? And so before I move forward, I want to remind you that overarching today, the gospel is an invitation for the brokenness of our sin, specifically in sexuality, to be rescued and redeemed to God's design. Before we move forward, though, first, how is God pleased? First, in verse 1, Paul moves from encouragement to exhortation. That's his first movement. He rounds the corner and he says, look, I've been encouraged where you're at. I'm so pleased with where you're at, and I want you to grow in this more and more and more. So whatever it is that they had already accomplished, whatever it is they had already received, he said, look, there's further for you to go. How many of you know that that is absolutely true for everyone who's in Christ? And he asks and urges them, he's strongly making this case to them, I want you to consider how your actions might please God. And how does he ask them? He pushes them towards God's pleasure. Rather than asking at first, what is God unhappy about? He's saying, I want you to walk in a way that pleases God. So it provokes this idea that there is a God in heaven and there's a way in which he could look at our lives and be just happy. I mean, just joyous and happy. And I don't know how long it's been since you felt the very delight of God on you, but that's the first plea that Paul is asking. I want you to walk in a way so that when God looks at you, he's just so delighted. He's so pleased. Now, how does that happen? There's two, two parts of this because first, there's absolutely no way that God is pleased with us outside of Jesus Christ. And then there's a second part where there's some things at stake. So first, What has already been accomplished for everyone who's in Christ, here's what I want you to know, that when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he looks at you not for what you've done and what you haven't done, but he looks at you ultimately through this lens that everything that you could possibly accomplish, Christ has accomplished for you in your place. That means that we're adopted as his kids. It's never going to change. If you're in Christ Jesus, you've been adopted into his family and he ultimately sees you through this lens of Jesus Christ. That's what is already established. But... And here's the and part of this. There's also something at stake, okay? There's something still at stake for how you live out that adoption. All of us have taken on the family name, right? But some of us behave like the God who adopted us, and some of us might more or less take on the family characteristics of who God is making us as a people. And so that's what's at stake in this passage. He's saying, hey, look, we have a role, not in what God has accomplished in adopting us, but we have a role to play in how we pursue what brings God the most pleasure out of our lives. So that's what's at stake. There's a couple of plays in which there's a couple other places in the New Testament when he talks about how we ought to walk. So there's a way in which he's inviting us and compelling us to let the gospel play itself out. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10, it says this: So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim. To please him, for we must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he's done in this body, in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, he's saying, hey, when we modeled this to you, what righteous living looks like, part of our aim in our behavior was to bring God pleasure. That was our aim. That was the target, okay? So first, they modeled this to them, and then look at this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 10. At, at one time, you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, 
For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So here's what's at stake. What's been accomplished, God's already adopted us. We couldn't have earned that for ourselves. There was nothing you could do to earn it. What is at stake? You can be more or less pleasing with God with the ways that you live this out, okay? It's an ultimate gift. How you use the gift of your freedom and your life has different degrees of how we can please Him. It's just like a relationship. Look, if I ask you, are you married? And you said, yep, I got married on July 1st, 2016. That's when it happened. And I was like, is there any other evidence of you getting married? I'm like, here's the ring. I got this going on, and there was a date behind me, and that's when it happened. In a lot of ways, we see our walk and relationship with Jesus in that way. There was a point when we came into it, but God wants us to have this relationship where we're paying attention to what pleases him, and we're walking with him on a daily basis. And specifically, that we would love him, that we'd respond to him in a way that reflects the love that he's shown to us. That we'd honor him in our bodies. And just as Paul was, was uh, saying to them, look, this is what you pursue, God's pleasure in this. Here's what I want you to know, that even in the walking and working of this, this thing out, we, we cannot please God unless we do it by faith. So even if we're making choices to both cultivate the right appetites, cull the wrong appetites, the only way to pursue it is by faith. And so God's pleasure is ultimately pursued by us walking with him in faith. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and rewards those who seek him. In other words, the only way for you to walk in a way, specifically in, in your human sexuality and human flourishing, or just in all of life, is ultimately to see him through the lens of faith. That you're surrendering, you're taking steps towards him, believing that he exists. And so, just as you're doing, do it all the more. In other words, you've been pursuing God's pleasure in this, Keep doing it. Keep moving forward. And then he moves on to God's will. Some of you ever wondered, what is God's will for my life? What does he have planned for me? Everybody who's in their 20s is still working it out. And, and at this point, some people in their 40s are still working it out. God, what's your plan for me? What's your plan for my life? And here's God's ultimate plan is verse 3. It says this, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification is just a big uh, Christian word that means you're changing you're being transformed. You're becoming more like him. You're being set apart towards holiness. You're being set apart for his purposes. So not only does he choose you and pick you and, and clean you up and make you his own, he's saying, hey, I want you to keep becoming more and more and more like you, like, like me, like God. So he's saying, You're, my will for you is that you would continue to be sanctified. And ultimately, he'll do it. And how does that look? This is the will of God, to be sanctified, to avoid certain things, to pursue certain things, to deny certain appetites, to encourage certain appetites. God has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son, and we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. In other words, when you get in proximity with God himself, it begins to change your appetite, your desires. St. Augustine said it this way, delight yourself in God and do as you please. Love God and do whatever you want. Psalm 34 says it this way, delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. He transforms the desires. He transforms who you are and what your appetites are and, and what you're like and what you enjoy. 
And so the natural conclusion of this sanctification would be that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then he goes on to describe it in verses 4 and 5, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So two ways, self-control, not in the passion of lust, in honor, in holiness and honor, pursue this. His desires for our sanctification and every step, even as hard as it might be for you to pursue sanctification, here's what you need to know. It's God's will for your life. So you're not pursuing something that God is naturally making difficult for you, okay? He wants to feed the right appetites. He wants, you to, he wants to decrease the wrong appetites in you. He wants you to ultimately look like him, to love what he loves, to hate what he hates. And why is this so important? Why is it so important that we control our appetites? Why is it so important that we're more than just glands that walk around and have these exchanges with one another? Ultimately, here's why it's important. There's consequences. If God designed human flourishing to work in a specific way, then every time it's abused, there's consequences. First for you, for the people around you, and ultimately towards him. His heart is grieved when his creation does not um, work in the way he designed it. So his will is his sanctification. There are consequences. That's part of it. He wants good things for you. And then he describes himself in the next part of this passage as an avenger. Now, I just imagine that there would be some kid in the room visualizing God as one of the avengers. Like somebody is picturing Jesus and Thor, and then they're like walking around. Ultimately, yeah, there he is. Ultimately, God, this word, it means, it means punisher. And uh, this is an idea, God's justice is an idea that is very unpopular. It's like, why can't we just skip over this? It makes everyone uncomfortable. But the reason that he's pleading with us to be reconciled to his design is because there are consequences for you personally, for others around you, and then ultimately towards God and your relationship with him. It says this, flee every sexual immorality. Look in 1 Corinthians 6, 18. It says this. Flee every sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So first thing you need to know is that when we commit sexual sin, it's first against us. God is looking at us and saying, I wanted something better for you. I wanted you to... To, to experience flourishing in the way that I designed it. I wanted you to experience the pleasure and the joy of sexuality in the way that I designed it. Ultimately, it's against you personally first. You're not just sinning against God. You're not just sinning against other people. You're sinning against yourself. Oh, if, you, if we do not, as human beings, learn the deference of pleasure delayed gratification, the commitment that is supposed to accompany this kind of emotional bond that happens in sex, it will destroy you. It'll destroy not only yourself, but those around you. Now, relationally, it also will destroy. That's the second part. It says any, uh, you've heard it said, in Matthew, this is Jesus's words. He said, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
Ultimately, adultery is any sexual engagement with someone who's not your spouse. Jesus defined adultery as just lust in your heart, even the wrong appetite for someone who's not your spouse. So if it's consensual, how could it be hurting someone? I can just hear the thoughts. The only way to understand this is to understand that we're hurting God himself and his design. So we hurt ourselves, we hurt others, and his justice would say that eventually it hurts him. And he is the avenger. God would say it's a gift. It's a holy gift to be received. And when you indulge in it outside of marriage, you're giving yourself and your body away and it's stealing. It's giving something away that was not yours to give. It was your spouse's to give. You're giving something that belonged to someone else away. When you take that from someone else, when you take someone's body in a way that's sexually immoral, you're taking something away from them personally and from their future spouse. And you're giving away something that's not yours. Every sexual encounter, every thought, every fantasy is an opportunity for others to be honored and God to be glorified or for us as individuals to be exalted and for God uh, and his honor to be destroyed. So here's what I want you to know. Every distorted portrayal of human sexuality exalts the individual rather than God. It's stealing God of his glory and you and others of your joy. And ultimately, this word is saying, hey, it will not go unnoticed. So when it says that God is punisher or avenger, it means that these things, if you're in Christ, these are things that Jesus had to suffer for. Every way that you've given yourself, Christ willingly suffered. He took the pain on himself. He took God's wrath on himself so that you would not receive that punishment. And, and, and one thing I want you to know is if you're not moved by God's mercy, perhaps first we need to see God's hatred of sin and his promise to avenge. The Lord is a mighty warrior. He's jealous. He's holy. He's righteous. And his praise will be his. So if we take things that don't belong to us, what we need to understand is that it's ultimately God who's the judge, and he will one day uh, take vengeance on everything that's against his holiness. Now, I know this is unpopular, but here's what I want you to know. For everyone in Jesus Christ, there's an offer to us. Inasmuch as we can see his justice hanging over our head, he's also offering us his mercy. So you cannot possibly appreciate or, to, or receive his mercy if you do not agree with him about what you need mercy for. And so we have to come before the throne of God's justice in order for us to adequately worship and appreciate and say, Lord, the gospel really is good news for me. It's good news. It's not just a ticket into heaven. It's every punishment that I deserve taken on someone that I love. And the more that we're brought into his family and adopted into this home and this family of God, we are, getting, we are in relationship with him, and it pains our heart to see how Christ would suffer. So yes, we're sinning against ourselves, we're wronging our brothers, we're wronging God, and ultimately, it's against his good design. And so we have to look at what is his design. This week, we almost got a ticket, okay? My family almost got a ticket right before I talked the officer out of it. We parked in a fire zone or, something, or some kind of no parking zone, and we're like, we're just running into this store. We're going to go in and come out. And, 
And when we come out, we're, we're about to walk out the door, and the guy is writing the ticket. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. And so it's, it's this moment where I'm pleading, like, please don't give us a ticket. We didn't know. We, we lost track of time. All those things. Well, basically, the guy was merciful to us, and that was awesome. Ultimately, he didn't write the rules for that parking lot. He was just enforcing and it was somewhat laughable. My kids got a big kick out of me trying to get this guy not to write us a ticket. They thought it was hilarious. But if he would have written the laws, if he owned the parking lot, if it was him that we offended, I think he might have been more apt to give us the ticket and say, this is rightfully what's yours. God will not be ignored for the ways that we ignore him as designer. Ultimately, he'll be the judge. He designed sexuality for himself to glorify him and for our joy. And so God's design for humanity in human sexuality was designed in the context of marriage between one woman and one man for one lifetime. That's his design. Now, am I saying that there's not ways in which uh, there's times for divorce? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this is God's intention. One woman, one man, one lifetime. It's God's good design. And because he gave it as a gift, we have to see first that he's the designer. He started with the story of what was not good, okay? So he looks at Adam in the garden, and y'all remember what he says? Adam is looking at all the, all the animals, and he's naming them. And one by one, they're coming for him, and there's a male and a female. He's like, that's good, I'll name it this. Here's a male and a female, and that's good, I'll, I'll name it this. And eventually, he begins to notice that there was not a suitable helper for him. Look at the zebras. They got a male and a female. Look at those deer. They got a doe and a buck. And then it comes to him, and he's like, hey, what gives, God? What's not right? And God looks at his creation for the first time in God's description of his creation. He says, it's not good that this man be alone. It is not good for him. And so God's good, good gift was that he would give him a helper suitable for him. And then in, in Genesis chapter 2, it says this. Then we get this picture. that This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Ultimately, God gives him the gift and he goes, Whoa! This is amazing. Thank you for this gift. And it says this, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Chapter two, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So the very first marriage was God's gift to them. He gives them as a gift to one another. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It was just perfect harmony. They were able to receive one another. There was no shame. There was no hiding. There was nothing like that. And then sin enters the world. Now, from that point forward, the good gift that God had designed and made for himself and his glory and for our pleasure and joy was marred. What was the first thing that happened when they ate the fruit? They began to hide, not from God, but from one another. Their relationship was broken. They began to hide from one another. They hid things. And then God, God continues to redeem, even in the brokenness of sin. He clothes them. Yes, there's consequences, but he continues to give them redemption. He gives them this gift of sexuality, not to destroy them, but for them to enjoy and to go and fill the commission of God, to go take the earth and subdue it, to, to fill it with people. And so it was this good gift of one another and a good commission within the gift, go and fill the earth, and then it's broken. One writer compared sex to a fire. Inside the fireplace inside a house, it's in a great place, right? 
<laughs> but if it gets outside of those boundaries, it will burn down the house over and over. That's what happens. And so our great just judge offers to become our great advocate and lawyer and to plea our cause. And so in every way that we would resist God's design for this, what we're also resisting is his offer to be our advocate, to be our merciful uh, lawyer who pleads our cause. So one of God's mercies to us is that we would receive his design and receive the gift of human sexuality so that we could live with great joy and pleasure, not only God's, but our pleasure. So I'm wrapping up, I promise. God's mercies to us is that we would receive his word. That's one of God's mercies. So I would imagine that there's people in the room, you brought all kinds of human <laughs> brokenness into the room. And I want you to know, this is a place that's safe for you. And if you hear the voice of the Lord speaking to you through this or correcting something in you, I just want you to know that, that he only corrects those that he loves. So do not resist it. The conclusion of this, this passage is that do not take these words as the words of men, but as God's word. Don't just hear it as the words of men. Like, this is my opinion. Look, I have no authority to, out, to throw out opinions about human sexuality. God does, though. And if he's pleading with you today... His invitation is to come and be rescued and redeemed. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Don't dismiss the Lord. Don't dismiss his words. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Every single person in this room is affected by sin. There's no part of your life that's unaffected. And everyone's life is broken. My life is broken. All of us have different appetites, desires, uh, attractions that are broken because of sin. And God's invitation is to say, bring all of those things to me and you can be rescued and redeemed. And there's not anyone in this room who's unaffected by it. Every person who comes to Christ comes as those who would be saved, just as a gift to you. And his ultimate gift is in verse 8. Look at it. What does he do? Do not ignore his words. His gift to you is the Holy Spirit. The greatest gift is not just this invitation, but the promise that he'll give you the power to accomplish all that he requires of you. God is both willing to work for his good pleasure He's working in those who believe to accomplish his purposes in your life. There are things that you should feel powerless over. But God's invitation is to receive this gift of his power. So whatever addictions you walked into the room with, I want you to hear me say this. Look, the Holy Spirit will both convict you and confirm you of the things that align with God. And he will give you the power by this gracious gift to walk towards holiness. He's working right now to convict you of sin, to hold you accountable in the future, to work to connect you with other people who are fighting the same battles. He's working right now maybe to convince you of his design of human flourishing, specifically in this area. We believe God's at work in the lives of everyone who believes, and that's ultimately his gift, that he not only calls us and reconciles us and redeems us, but he gives us with his Holy Spirit. And so for wherever you're at, whatever you're walking through, the gospel is an invitation to be rescued and redeemed from broken sexuality, and you can be delivered into holiness by his power, and that's good news. So, 
Whatever you're coming from, here's the conclusion. There's enough grace for you. There's a couple ways that we might respond to this message, okay? Um, for some of you, you might be thinking of the list of people that are worse than you, okay? If that's you, um, I just want to encourage you to see the equal footing that we all stand on if we're standing on our own good deeds. All of us would stand condemned if we're working from our own righteousness. <laughs> Gratefully, he offers us the grace that comes through Christ and his righteousness, and there's enough grace for you. For those of you who come in here with a very, very long history of <laughs> lots of things that you regret, things that you wish were different, I just want you to know that God's grace towards you is sufficient and it is real and he sees you. He sees the parts of you you can't even see yourself. He's inviting you to be rescued and redeemed and he sees you with great affection and compassion, with understanding that goes beyond where, however you understand yourself. He sees you clearly and there is enough grace. And also progress can be made. That's part of what his grace looks like. It looks like being more like Jesus than you were yesterday. And if some of you are like, hey, I don't even know where to start. Get around people. Order your life so that you can spend time in God's word and in prayer. It is rare that I've ever met anyone who's caught up in sexual sin, who has a regular quiet time with Jesus. I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm just saying it's really hard for you to be ensnared by the enemy in this if you're spending regular proximity with God and his word. It's really hard. There's enough grace for you that are resistant. Those who are actively trying to resist and dismiss what I might say, there's enough grace in, in God right now to convince you of everything that Christ actually died for. There might be some resistance to see this as God's law because anytime you lift up the law, Romans says that sin increases, right? But it also says that grace increases all the more. You guys know that. So if you're reluctant to see this as God's rule for you, you, it will also withhold a certain kind of grace from you. You can repent and return so that what? So that refreshing might come. There's a certain amount of refreshing that's avoided because we avoid acknowledging and admitting that we're in disagreement with God when it comes to our sexuality. So if you're in that place, do not resist him. Do not avoid him. And those of you who are paralyzed today by shame and condemnation, one of the reasons the church has resisted speaking on these things is because there's so much hypocrisy. There's so much hypocrisy when it comes to this. There's so many ways in which we say this is what should be, and then our lives do not align with it. And so for those of you who feel like the biggest hypocrite, if you agree with my description of what God's design is for sexuality, but you feel like I am so far from that, if you're a hypocrite today, there is enough grace for you. There's enough grace to show up in this room and to bring yourself before the throne of God and say, God, is there mercy for me? His answer is yes. His answer is yes, there is. If you're plagued by regret, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None. He absorbs all of it. God is able and desirous and willing to, to aid you so that we would be in this constant state of returning to the place we received grace. And for those who feel very far, I just want to speak this word of grace over you. Jeremiah 3, 12 and 13. It's a plea to return. Go and proclaim these words towards the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, 
declares the Lord. Here's the really good news. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree and that you've not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. In other words, for everyone who even is, you, you know that you've fallen short of God's glory and you want to return. God does hate sin, but he does not hate those who return to him. He loves them with a sincere affection and there's mercy for you. He will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt and he will receive you. That's the good news of the gospel. Now, there are ways in which <laughs> there's so much more to deal with when it comes to human sexuality. I barely scratched the surface. But God's word is true. And he would have us to be a faithful people and to regularly bring ourselves back to the place where we could say, Lord, your grace is enough for me. So let's bring ourselves to that place today. If you would, go ahead and take your communion cup. If you're trusting in Christ, I want you to take this cup. And this is what we're hoping in. Not that this action would save us, but that Christ Jesus willingly said, I will give my body in your place for your sins. So take it and receive this as his gift. Take and eat. And in the same way he said, this is the blood of my new covenant, my blood poured out for you. So in every way that we've fallen short, in every way that we need redemption, Christ said, I will willingly give my life for you. Let's take and drink and remember. Now, if you came into this room and you felt like, oh no, I can't stand dealing with this today, just know that I'm available to talk to you. There are people who would pray for you, that would partner with you. If you came in feeling very much alone in whatever your human struggle is, I don't want you to leave alone. I'm going to be on the front, and I would love to pray with you. You can email me if you're tuning in online at Nathan at bellwetherchurch.org, and I'd love to pray over you. Find space so that you're not alone in this journey of walking towards God's design. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, your word. I pray that you bless it. Help us to walk in faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up and sing.